You're driving down the road. It's a beautiful day, sunny. The wind is in your hair. Gorgeous drive. You're enjoying the scenery. And all of a sudden, somebody passes you with such fury. It's like they're breaking the sound barrier. And in a nanosecond, your entire mood changes. You, you go from, you, you, you go from, you know, oh, what a sweet day that the Lord has made. So he's like, I want sweet justice. Where are the police? Your mood, it's just immediately, in a nanosecond, it's incredible. You know, you just go from wanting to drink in the sun to wanting to see the flashing lights, you know, they pull this person over. It's amazing. Um, and when those things happen, and by the way, if you're the, if you're the speeder in this analogy, relax, because the analogy is going to be over in a moment. But... Uh, <laughs> When this happens, in, injustice has a way of draining us of our thankfulness and our joy. You can just be going down, the, going down the road and complete enjoyment and thankfulness. And the moment injustice is introduced, it sucks the thankfulness and the joy out of us. This morning our text is Psalm 9. And David, in Psalm 9, sounds a little bit like a scenario of being in great thankfulness and enjoyment and then very quickly being confronted with injustice and then experiencing like whiplash in the soul and the whole mood changes. And as we come to Psalm 9, we're going to find that this is a psalm of lament and um, we can identify with David's tone in Psalms of Lament because whenever we look out on the landscape of society politically or sociologically um, or economically, not only in our country, but in around the world. You can't escape injustice, and you can't escape seeing injustice. And so this psalm helps us see how God's mercy and God's grace and God's justice is a source of strength by creating in us extremely thankful hearts. Psalm chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord my God with my whole heart, and I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt your name. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back and they stumble and perish before you in your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. The cities you rooted out and the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell all the people of his wondrous deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He who does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, and that in the gates of the, of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, and in the net that they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. 
Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is God's word. So David starts out with this great thankfulness. He's remembering God's faithfulness in the past. And so he cries out for God's faithfulness in the present and for the future. And he does this because of injustice. And he's calling out for for God's faithfulness. And kids, if you look in your notes, you'll see that's a predictable pattern uh, for our prayer. Remembering God was faithful in the past, and then on that basis, praying for God's faithfulness when we see injustice in the present. It's a helpful guide. When you look at verse number one, David starts out by saying, I remember your wonderful deeds, or your wondrous deeds. And yes, so this, uh, this word, wondrous deeds, is not just simply... Red Sea-sized miracles, right? Red Sea parting-sized miracles. That is a wondrous deed, and it does mean that. But the word wondrous in the Hebrew is palah, which also means, um, which means to be able to do something beyond one's power. So when David says, I'm remembering all of your wondrous deeds, yes, it includes the Red Sea parting-sized miracles, but it also means all of the faithful, subtle ways that God is continually present for us in our life through his spirit giving us power, carrying us through something that we would not be able to do on our own power. And so David says, oh, I'm remembering your, your wondrous deeds. And uh, it's an incredible picture because um, you are united to Christ by grace. We look at this psalm as those who are united to Christ by grace and we recognize that our union with Christ has implications that the grace of Christ is flowing through us. So as we're going to God in prayers, we're looking out on culture, or we're looking even into the darkness of our own hearts and seeing injustice, we can remember God's wondrous deeds. The things that he was able to do by his power that we weren't able to do. Yes, the Red Sea-sized miracles, but also the subtle ways he is faithful in your life Monday, to Monday through Saturday. Every week before we gather here together to church uh, to rem- remember him corporately and worship him corporately. And so if you stop and reflect on your life since you came to faith and since you came to believe the gospel, you're going to find many instances of God's pala working in you. You're going to find his empowering work carrying you through times that were riddled with anxiety. You're You're going to reflect and remember trials that were inviting you into great fear. And God carried you through those times. Or situations and seasons... Uh, where you were absolutely overshadowed with uncertainty because you didn't know what the future held. You didn't know what the next season of your life was going to look like. You had no clue what was around the corner. And yet you look back now and you see how God was faithful to carry you through. The great wondrous deeds of God, the Palah, that brings us into this place of great thankfulness. And this is important because when you do that, you look back and you say, God was with me, God empowered me, God carried me, Thank you, God. That begins to create something in our hearts. Kids, if you look down in your notes, you're going to see there's a quote there by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a a great Baptist preacher in the 19th century, and this is what he said. He said, Gratitude for one mercy refreshes the memory as to thousands of others. One silver link in the chain draws up a long series of tender remembrances. That was how Charles Spurgeon looked back on this Psalm of David. Remembering that one mercy is like that one link in the chain that that just draws up the rest. And so it's a a beautiful picture. So this psalm, remember like all the psalms, it's a song and it's a prayer. And in your Bibles, before 
it says verse one, there's a little inscription and it says, you know, to the chief musician, played in this particular tune, right? And that, that's in the original Hebrew, so that's those little, uh, those little uh, prefaces before the Psalms are in the original Hebrew Bible, so they're important. And, uh, and this particular one tells us, you know, okay, hey, remember, this is a song. It actually says um, to the chief musician and play it in the tune of Death of a Son. I don't know what the tune of Death of a Son was. I'm guessing it was in a minor key. But the point is, it's like when you sing this, ancient people of God, when you sing it, this is the tune it's to be sung in. And so then they sing the song. Now think about the power of the playlist in your life. Think about the power of the playlist. Think of the prevalence of the playlist. The playlist is incredibly prevalent in our, in our lives right now. Athletes, before they go into tremendous competition, and, uh, what are they doing? They're meandering around the locker room with headphones on. They're to, oblivious to the world, and the playlist is getting them into you know, the zone. When you are feeling great, you have playlists that you, you, know, you, you put on because you are in the mood to party, in the mood to have, you know, rejoice and have people hang out and have a good time. You have a playlist for that. When you're feeling calm, quiet, and contemplative, or you're feeling down, or you're feeling depressed, those are not the songs you play. You have a different playlist. You have a different set of songs you play for that. We have the power and the prevalence of the playlist in our life is tremendous. We even have playlists, you know, in our house for cleaning. We start cleaning the kitchen, and it's like, okay, we got to get some cleaning music up in here. And so, like, someone goes over to the record player and start, you know, starts songs, and you know, we we got the playlist. This is important because what we what this psalm is teaching us, what all the psalms are teaching us, really, is that um, when you remember the goodness of God, when you think about God's faithfulness, his palah, throughout all of history and in your own life. It's like putting God's grace on repeat. Then it lifts your soul. The gift of gathering around God's gospel weekly as a church and the gift of gathering around God's gospel regularly in your home. It's like putting a playlist on that, that invites your church, uh, invites your family uh, to live their life with a background track of thankfulness. And that's what David is doing. Because remember, things aren't good at all. You know. Uh, and he, sometimes we look out at the culture and things are not good at all. And so he, he's got, he, David begins with this great thankfulness. But again, he's not immune to the suffering. I mean, he's thankful. But the, but the tune of this is play to the tune of death of a son. Has to be a minor key. Has to be, has to be a gripping reality to what's going on. And yet, through that gripping reality, through the tune of death of a son, whatever that would sound like, I don't know, but through that, there is this pervasive thankfulness. That's only by God's grace. It's because he's remembering the palah, the great um, faithfulness of God. So the gospel continually fills you and heals you and lifts you. The gospel announces that by God's grace, through faith in Christ, you're a child of God. Your life is in the hand of God. And so the good news cannot be be news that becomes old news. It never becomes old news because life is like the tone of this song. You're going down the highway and you're very thankful and life is great and the sun is beautiful and then some injustice comes in and shifts your whole mood. And so because of that, we always are in need of God's grace. The news of God's grace absolutely never gets old. 
And so David's crying out because from his point of view in the psalm, it seems like the world is getting away with it. Sometimes we can look out on culture and feel the same way and be like, boy, there's so, there, oh, I see that injustice or the oppression of the poor or the weak um, or the oppression of women or the oppression of uh, our economic oppression by uh, those with uh, tremendous um, means. Gaining those means on the backs of those who have no means. And we look on this injustice in the world and we say, it's very infuriating because it seems like everybody's getting away with it. This psalm reminds us that there is a great and faithful God who is not only just but merciful, which we're going to get to in a minute. And it should be very humbling for us as we reflect on this to know that no, 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 um, we're not God, there is a God, and, and evil isn't going to get away and win in the end. That's not the faithful God that we serve, that's not the trajectory of the scripture. And so when we look at it, we, 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 we find that to be a hurdle. And for some of you, you maybe have struggled with faith to say, I'm not sure you know, how good and great can God be when there's these terrible things in the world. What we need, I think, to remember in all of this is that the fact that God hasn't just wrapped up humanity, like we're so quick to say, well, God, why don't you just wrap it up, is because it's actually a picture of his patience and his grace on display. It's his patience and his grace on display because while we as the church, can sometimes get self-righteous and rage against what's wrong in the world stemming from hearts of sinful people, though that's true, we can simultaneously forget that sinful people are all that there are and that we were sinful people and that we were the unjust and that we were the undeserving and that if we are honest and we look into the dark, unevangelized places of our hearts today, we're still, in some ways, at certain times, unjust and sinful. And so as we look out on the injustice in the world, and sometimes we're so quick to say, God, why don't you just wrap it all up? We have to be mindful. We don't want God to obliterate sinful people. We, we are sinful people. We're not past tense sinful people, church. We are sinful people in need of God's grace. And so may we revel and remember the wondrous works of God that has saved us so that we can engage our culture with a sense of, uh, of, uh, of grace and mercy, seeking justice but being done so not from an, with an air of arrogance and not with an air of superiority, but as, as, humful, as humble beggars who found bread, as Luther said, and now we're going and telling the other beggars where the bread is. This is us. This is the church. So this is, the, this is what we must remember as we look at psalms like Psalm 9, Psalms of Lament, because this is, the, this is true. We don't want to, God just to obliterate the sinful people. Sinful people is all there are. And maybe you're here and you're hearing this and you're saying, you know, this sermon is really bothering me because I don't think sinful people is all there are. I think there's good people. Okay. And I've talked with folks who've really had a hard time and have choked on this saying, I think that what God should just accept your best shot at it. You know, like, let's just try and be good and try and be good people and God should be okay with that. Okay, so here's why that's not good news. First of all, if you decide what God should accept, who is God in that equation? I mean, it just stands to reason that your very logic is flawed from the beginning to say, well, here's what I think. I've set up the world and the universe and my ideology, and I think that God should just accept our best shot, and, he, and I think he should be able to do that. If there is a God in that scenario, it certainly isn't this one you've concocted. It's you, because you're the one setting the terms for salvation. So that's probably the first problem with it. But the other reason it's really bad news is because if you say, well, God should just accept a person who lives a good life, who gets to define good? Us? You? You get to define good? Why do you get to define? 
Why doesn't our neighbor get to define it? If you think God should just accept you because you're good, who gets to define good? So all of a sudden, this becomes a problem because us humans, we are, cosmically speaking, you know, like fruit flies in the universe. We're not here very long. And so why should we get to determine what an omnipotent and eternal God should consider as good? So this creates a problem because we think, well, let's just create a sliding scale of morality with Mother Teresa at one end and Charles Manson at the other. And as long as you don't land on Charles Manson anywhere in Bikitiri, is that, how do we determine this idea of good? So what the scriptures teach, and this is why it's good news, is good is not defined as your best shot at it. Because how long would it take you to find somebody who is more loving, generous, patient, kind than you? How long would that take? You know? Not long. How long would it take me to find somebody more loving, patient, kind, and generous than me? I could find someone like that in 30 seconds. I could just walk, walk here and pick one of you. Some, you know, easy. No problem. We know the darkness of our own hearts. And so what the scriptures present is not a God who says, well, let's see where you land on a sliding scale of morality. But God says, I'll define good. And he defines good as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is good personified. And so when you look at Jesus Christ, what did Jesus Christ do? He gave up everything. And he abandoned absolutely everything that was good and comfortable that he loved. He was willing to leave everything, give everything to die. Not for good people. Jesus was willing to give up everything, leave everything, and die for bad people. Who in here, starting with this preacher, would give up our family? Who, who in here would go home and say, kiss, you know, kiss your family and be like, I love you guys, but I gotta go. I'm giving, I'm giving up all of you and this home and everything that I love and all the shiny little trinkets that you're into or whatever. I mean, you're, everything in your whole life, everything that you enjoy about being a human... Say, I'm going to give this all up because there's this guilty sinner on death row. I'm going to go and take his place. Well, did he commit the crime? Is he an innocent man who is wrongly... No, no. He did it. He's guilty. And I'm going to go and take his place. That's how the Bible defines good. So, none of us qualify. And so, when we look out on injustice, we should rage against it because it's wrong. And as a church, we don't just bury our heads in the sand and build a nice church and live inside it and say, don't get out in the puddle of the world, you'll surely get dirty. No. We're called to be ministers of grace and justice in the world. But the way in which we do that is with a pervasive sense of gratitude and graciousness for the pala, the wondrous works of God, that he's done in our own heart and in our own life. And that forms the way that we approach our culture and be an outward-facing church in this city. And how we are able to be generous and love and dialogue and have discourse and disagree and come against, in a, in a, in a civil way, but come against those who do not share uh, our ideas of justice or of ethics. There's a way for us to do that in a loving and a gracious way. And so David cries out for God's, God's justice. And when we look at verse 10, it says that... Um, it says that God will not forsake those who seek him. And this is important because who seeks God? Who seeks God? The text says he will not forsake you if you seek him. So the question is, okay, great. So who seeks him? The Apostle Paul answered that question. The Apostle Paul looks back on humanity and looks at Christ and he looks at the cross and he looks at the empty tomb and the Apostle Paul comes to the conclusion in Romans chapter 3 that the answer to who seeks God is Nobody seeks God. 
Because we all want to be our own God. So what does this God do? Psalm, 10, Psalm 9 verse 10 says, He will remember you, you know, if you seek Him. But then this God of great justice, who will remember those who seek Him, has a dilemma. And the dilemma is, nobody seeks Him. So what does the God of justice do? He shows Himself as a God of tremendous mercy. I'll remember those who seek me, but nobody seeks me. So I will come in Jesus Christ and seek them. That is how we look at Psalm 9 on the other side of this, of the cross. Is there injustice? Yes. Are there those who will continue to continually not seek God? Absolutely. Is there injustice and evil in the world? True. But church, we have to ravel ourselves back in wonder and amazement. That when we look at verse 10, and when you look at verse 10, you get to say, that's me. <laughs> you get to look at verse 10 and go, that describes me. I remember God. I seek God. God's going to remember me. You get to look at verse 10 and go, that described me. That's amazing. But at one point, that didn't describe you. So how did you get from there to here? Grace alone. Christ alone. That's how we got from there to here. This God of great justice is a God of great mercy. Every time the Bible refers to the world as sinful, it is not saying that we are the worst version of ourselves. It is saying we will never be saved by the best versions of ourselves. The Bible calls all of us sinners. It's not saying all of us are the... Uh, if you're a sinner, you're the worst version of humanity. You're the worst version of yourself. It says we're all sinners because none of us could be saved by the best version of ourselves. All of us are in need of this great grace. And so this God of great justice shows himself as a God of great grace for you and I. He moved towards us through his church who shared his gospel with us. And then he drew us and he saved us. And now he won't forsake us. And now this is the God of great grace who continues to do his saving work through us. So how do we read the psalm of lament, the this, this psalm of anger and injustice as we look out on the world? What do we do? Do we become a community of faith who just sits in here and raises our, raises our fists and goes, the injustice in the world. If only they were holy and good like us. What? Are you kidding me? How did you get here? By the grace of God. And so what is our posture toward those who are where we once were? Postures of, wonder, of uh, grace and mercy and civility. And so, again, the other thing we need to, I think, is helpful is David's writing about his enemies here. David was a king, and he had a real nation, and he had real national en enemies. So David is writing about uh, literal political enemies. But how do you and I interpret Psalm 9? How do we read it on this side of the cross? We don't interpret it politically. We don't interpret it relationally. We don't read Psalm 9 and go, oh yeah, there's injustice and there's, and there's enemies of God. And you know what? It's probably Frank. Because get a load of Frank. There's not a Frank in here, right? I don't think so. I, I tried to pick a name. Frank's like, I'm never coming back to Redeemer. Okay, the, how do we relate to this? David is writing about real enemies. So who are our enemies as we, as we read Psalm 9? How is this relevant to us today? Well, we can't read it politically. We can't read it relationally. We have to read this spiritually. Why? How am I saying that? Am I just being, is that just a good Christian say, thing to say, to say, oh, let's just read it spiritually? No, I'm telling you why. Because um, this psalm is about Christ. All psalms are about Christ. This psalm was fulfilled in Christ. And so we are those united Christ looking back on it going, how do I understand this? And again, I'm going to borrow from the apostles because they interpret this. So I'm not going to tell you something I made up when I was, you know, studying. I'm going to tell you what the apostles said. They said in Ephesians 6, 
about our enemies. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians about our enemies. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. People are not the problem. People are not our enemies. The people committing injustice in the world are not our enemies. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the armor of God so that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore praying. And then the text continues. We don't read it politically. We don't read it relationally. We don't say Frank's the enemy. It's that, it's that nation over there. They're the, it's, the, it's the powers of darkness that once were gripping our hearts, that are continuing to gripping hearts. And this God of great justice is a God of great mercy who's in the business of rescuing people. And so we stand for justice and mercy in the city. And we're people who stand uh, with, with civility and we relate uh, with, with, uh, with uh, graciousness uh, when we're coming against oppression. And we're coming against things that are not right. When the strong are eating the weak, we say something about that. That's the work of the gospel on the ground. But where is that all flowing from? It's because we're marveling. It's from verse 1. We're marveling at the wondrous work of God. We're marveling at the Pala of God. What is that? It's Christ and Him crucified for you and I. The Psalm 9 at one point was describing all of you. But now it's not. To the glory of God because of Jesus. This is the good news of, of the gospel. And so this is how Christ rips open the Psalms. You know when a little child is opening up a present and, they, and they're tearing the wrapping paper off the corner and then they see what's inside and they go, <gasps> and then just really tear it? That's what Jesus does to the Bible. It's like you're reading it and all of a sudden you begin, you're reading Psalm 9 and all of a sudden you're seeing, oh my goodness, I was that person and Jesus, I was the unjust, but now I'm just because of it. And Jesus rips the, the Psalm of Lament open. And that's what happens here. I'll show you. God is a God of infinite grace, greatness and gentleness in this psalm. In verse 7, he's enthroned forever. His throne is established for justice. Verse 8, our God is supreme in glory and might. And then verse 9, he's not aloof and uncaring. He's not firing lightning bolts. It says he's a stronghold for the oppressed. This God, of, this God of transcendence over the cosmos says, the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden and the outcast, they matter to me. And the strong that are eating the weak, they're not going to get away with that. This great God of justice and mercy, of gentleness. The God of Psalm 9 is supremely powerful and supremely gentle. Church, Jesus Christ is the God of Psalm 9. Jesus Christ is the one that Psalm 9 is talking about, this God of great supremacy and of great gentleness. You know, the psalm is an acrostic. Psalm 9 and 10 are an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is, kids? You remember acrostics? You know, A, and then you have B, and then C, and you write a poem with an acrostic every letter. That's what this is. Every letter in the Hebrew language is used in Psalm 9 and 10. I think every letter. They have 22 letters in their alphabet. And it goes through. And when they do that, helps with memorization, helps with rhythm. This psalm is clunky to read in English, but it's not clunky to read in Hebrew because it's an acrostic, so it's poetic. Okay, so they did that. But there's another reason they would use an acrostic, because when they used all the letters of their alphabet, it was a literary device for saying, here's the A to Z on this. A to Z. And so what we learn about the A to Z, about this great God of grace, 
is that those who reject God are unjust, and those who forget God will be forgotten, which is a problem, because everybody rejected God, so therefore everybody was unjust. Everybody rejected and forgotten God, therefore everybody would be forgotten. Unless this God of great justice was also a God of great grace. And this is precisely what we find. You know, if you go up Weber Street here, if you come out of uh, Redeemer parking lot and just drive up Weaver and you keep going, you get to the, the police station on Weaver Street in Waterloo. There's a statue out front of the police station. What is it? It's a lion and a lamb. Where did they get that idea from? Because if you look at the natural order of things, lions are not in the business of protecting lambs. Kids who've watched Zootopia know this to be true. Okay? That, that's not what happens in the, in, in the world. Okay? Where do they get that image of a lion and a lamb? It's from Revelation 5, actually. It's because the lion and the lamb is the quintessential picture of ultimate justice and ultimate mercy. Combined. And it's not us. Where mankind has no ability to do this. The lion and the lamb in Revelation 5, which is where we get that image from, is Jesus. John, re re John reveals that Jesus is the lion of Judah, and he is the lamb that was slain. He is one and the same. He is the great lion and the great lamb. He is the great God of justice that says, the unjust will be forgotten. And then he is the great sacrificial lamb that comes and says, and because the unjust will be forgotten, I will come, the one who is just, and I will lay my life down. The just lion will lay his life down like the sacrificial lamb, and the just will die for the unjust, so that those who would be forgotten will not be forgotten. And this is the great God of Psalm 9, who comes and who does this great uh, work of both justice and mercy, not by shedding the blood of his enemies, by shedding his own blood. Jesus, the king and judge over you, is the one who justified and pardoned you. Jesus, the one who deserved no judgment, took your judgment. Jesus remembered God, and he was forsaken by God. So that you, who are so quick to forget God, who, so that me, who I am so quick to forget God, will be remembered by him. Jesus is a stronghold for the oppressed. And church, you and I were the oppressed. We were oppressed by sin, and therefore we actively seek mercy and justice for those who are oppressed in our city. Jesus came and he preached the good news of the gospel to the poor. We were the poor. We were the spiritually poor. We were the undeserving. And therefore, because Christ has made us rich, we care for the poor in this city. The gospel announces that God has not forgotten you. God sees you. God remembers you. God is with you. And therefore, as children of this great God of justice and mercy church, as those who are united to Christ because of his great sacrifice, because of what he had done, may we go out and be a blessing in this city. May we seek justice for those who are oppressed by injustice, and may we be ministers of God's grace, those who need his grace. Amen.